Every once in a while, if you're in my line of work, somebody will uh, try to shock you with this information. You know what? I'm really not buying what you're, what you're selling. I really doubt seriously that uh, any of that religion stuff, any of that Christianity stuff is true. I have a friend uh, who calls me preacher man, <laughs> and uh, he's not a believer. And he'll say, preacher man, I just, I, I just don't believe it. I can't, I can't buy it. As if I, I've never heard uh, of someone who's wrestled with doubts about Jesus being the Christ or about the resurrection itself, which is quite frankly what we as disciples of Jesus pin all of our hopes on, the resurrection. <laughs> and I kind of smile and chuckle and, and talk and, and listen, uh, but in my heart I'm thinking if you, if you only knew <laughs> how much I at times in my own life as a disciple of Jesus, who one who would stand in front of you emphatically and agree with Sherry's statement would respond to her, Christ is risen indeed, and yet at times in my own life I have wrestled with doubts. How can Sherry go into orphanages and see what she has seen in her life and not at times as she's confessed to me, wrestled with some doubts? I've stood at four corners in the place outside Chair Prevets where Sherry's talked about it, and she's right, you don't want to go there. It's an awful place. I would say it's a God-forsaken place, except the gospel is making a difference in people's lives there. But you can't, you can't see that kind of pain and suffering and not have some doubts in your mind. So if you're here this morning and you have doubts about faith, maybe somebody dragged you to church, maybe somebody said, look, it's the, the one day a year we go. Or maybe you're here every Sunday, Sunday in and Sunday out, and you struggle and you wrestle with some of these doubts and you're not convinced about the resurrection of Jesus. I, I hate to be the one maybe to break this news to you, but you're not all that unique. (laughs) In fact, it's not just unique to our generation, although I think doubt and skepticism uh, has taken on maybe a a bit of a new life fold as the world. Book of the Bible, uh, which we're actually going to begin to study in in a couple of weeks. And Satan says to Eve, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from those trees in the garden, planting doubt in her mind? One of the very first conversations ever recorded in history introduces doubt. When God was confronted by Moses at the burning bush and and God said to Moses, Moses, I've heard the cry of my people Israel in Egypt in bondage and slavery and the day has come for their release. The day has come where I'm going to set them free and Moses, I'm going to use you. You're going to be my chosen instrument to go and confront Pharaoh and to bring my people out of Egypt and to bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses said, God, that is a phenomenal idea. I got this cousin named Aaron and I think you ought to send him to do the job. Doubt is all throughout history. It's all throughout Scripture. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 77. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be faithful? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Doubt. The ancient Greek skeptics actually allotted doubt as a, as a virtue. And down throughout history, we see it playing its way out. Cynical minds found a, a voice during the Enlightenment, and they continue down to this day. I was found a, a, voice during the, a voice during the Enlightenment, and they continue down to this day. I would venture to say that skepticism has is, is almost become the new religion of our time. If you don't doubt, if you aren't cynical then there's something wrong with you. You're naive, you're foolish, you're simple-minded. We doubt everything. We doubt our political leaders. We doubt the CEOs who run our corporations. We even uh, doubt our sports heroes. I don't know if you uh, receive uh, Sports Illustrated 
uh, but the March 20 issue has uh, Albert Pools on the cover, and maybe you had the opportunity to, to read this article. Albert had a pretty good day yesterday, as days go. Uh, but in this article, fascinating article about Albert Pujols, the whole question is whether or not baseball players can be clean uh, in this day and age. Uh, and I'm not going to read the, the whole article for you, but just a, a couple of lines out of it because it speaks to this, this idea of skepticism and doubt. Uh, Albert is continuing his comments to the, uh, to the reporter who's asking the questions. And he says, but it's like I always say, come and test me. Come and do whatever you want. But then he stops cold. He shakes his head. Those words don't do him any good either. This is more of the uncompromising math of 2009. The more he denies, the less people will believe him. This is an uneasy state of the new baseball hero. Albert Pujols knows he cannot prove to people that he has never used steroids. He knows that there will always be doubters. Dennis Dutton, who uh, wrote a review recently of Jennifer Heck's book, Doubt a History, writes the following. The need to believe in cosmic salvation is as persistent as our lower-level interest in sex, power, or gossip. Belief mongers will always find new threats, new promises, and new lines of patter. Doubt's work is never done. I've been called a lot of things in my life. I don't think I've ever been called a belief monger, but I will, uh, I will gladly wear that monocle this morning. Doubt in the resurrection is not new. In fact, it's almost as old as the event in the resurrection is not new. Even a few moments, the disciples of Jesus were doubting his resurrection, were doubting the promises that you saw that he gave him. He gave them back in Luke chapter 9. During his earthly ministry on three different occasions, Jesus said to his disciples very plainly, to these women and to his, his 12 disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to sinful men. I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And yet they did not believe. But that really isn't the question so much this morning. The question really is, what happens when doubt meets reality? What happens when doubt meets reality? Luke chapter 24, the first 11 verses, hear the word of God. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices that they had prepared, they being the women who are followers of Jesus. Those are some of his most faithful, faithful friends. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb... They told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Jonna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to, uh, to be a belief monger, to uh, present your truth. 
Father, as we gather together here this morning, each one of us has questions in our minds. We might not vocalize them. We might not ever verbalize them to anybody, but deep in the recesses of our hearts, we have doubts and we have fears and we have perplexities. Lord Jesus, you have said that you are the answer ultimately to the deepest perplexities of our life, which is the question of death. It's the question of our mortality. It's the question of, is this all there is? Could it be we dare to hope against hope that there might be something more? And if there is, then how do we, how do we participate in it? How, do, how does it come to be true in our lives? Father, we live in a day and age of skepticism. We live in a day and age of cynicism. Almost all of our heroes have let us down. Father, you know I try not to have any living heroes because I'm afraid that they'll do something that will, that will take them off my list. And Lord, I would dare say that many of us this morning, for whatever reason, may be skeptical of the resurrection. But Father, doubt does not change reality. And I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to that this morning. Lord, my words will not convince anybody. My words hold no power. I confess to you my sin. You know that I fall short of loving you and loving other people the way I should. Father, I pray that you wouldn't let me stand in the way of what you want us to know this morning and hear and understand, perhaps again, just to be reinforced, or maybe even in the way of what you want us to know this morning and understand, perhaps again, just to be reinforced, or maybe even for the first time. So Lord Jesus, we need you to come the resurrected Lord Jesus through his spirit and through his word to come and to be our teacher this morning. And it is for this that I pray in your name. Amen. I want to make four observations about this text this morning uh, as we consider the question, what happens when doubt uh, comes face to face? What happens when doubt meets reality. The first thing I'd like to do is I'd like you to introduce you to the original doubters of the resurrection. Maybe you've met them before. Maybe you've heard this story. Maybe it's the first time. But as I said, if you're a doubter this morning, you are, you're not the first one. In the first three verses of chapter 24, Luke records this. But on the first day of the week, it's a Sunday, uh, at early dawn, uh, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Uh, these women are no strangers to Jesus. These are not casual observers. These are not people who just happened to be passing by. They were in Jerusalem for the weekend, and they saw the crucifixion and, and were curious about it and wanted to follow up on it. These were ardent followers. These are people that were disciples. These are people who had left behind everything to come and to follow Jesus. And probably most likely for the last three years where Jesus has had a public ministry in Galilee and Judea and around Jerusalem, these women had followed him day after day after day. They had been there when what Luke recorded in, in chapter 9 that we read in our Bibles today happened. They were sitting there when Jesus said, understand this. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to sinful men. I'm going to be crucified, but on the third day, I'm going to rise. And they were there at the cross. They had been there three days earlier when Jesus hung there and darkness covered the land. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They were there when Jesus said, it is finished. Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. They were at the cross. They knew the teaching of Jesus, but now we find them on Sunday morning on a trip to the cemetery with spices, which display both their devotion and their unbelief. 
because probably, as you know, they were taking spices to, uh, to make sure that Jesus' body was prepared correctly for his burial, that, that where he was laid to rest, that they would take the custom of the day and they would make sure that the ointments and the spices and the things that should be uh, used to prepare a corpse for its burial and, and wrapped very carefully in all the linens, they, they weren't going to leave that to Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, not to be a sexist here, but, but I know that my wife sometimes says, Tom, I can't let you do that. I got to do it because it's got to be done a certain way, which is another way of saying it's got to be done right. Okay? I'm not offended by that. That's okay. <laughs> but I just see these gals saying, well, you know, Joseph's a nice guy, but we just can't trust that he, that he took care of the Lord. And we need to go and make sure that, that his body is prepared right. Our dreams are dashed. Our hopes are crushed. But at least we can offer this one last bit of love to the one who has died. And yet it also shows not only their devotion, but it shows their unbelief. They expected to find a body in that tomb. Now, I don't want to condemn them for their lack of faith. I think we may be quick to to judge them and say, boy, if we had been there, we certainly would have remembered what Jesus said. We certainly wouldn't have doubted. We would have gone to the tomb early looking for the risen Christ. And I think it's, it's easy to sit back uh, and to be a Monday morning quarterback, so to speak, to, to judge the actions and the attitudes of others and to assume that you would do things differently. But the facts are, there have been moments in my life where I have despaired. There have been moments in my life where I have given up hope. There have been moments in my life where I've said, Lord, I, I, you know, I, I've gone to school for years, a lot of years, and I've studied and I a lot of study, and I know in my mind it's true, but my heart just isn't there right now. I'm just having such a difficult time believing <laughs> So before I start casting stones, so to speak, at these, I I think we ought to be quick to admit, I I need to be quick to admit that I would probably be one of those original doubters. I probably would have been right there saying, you know, you need something to admit that I would probably be one of those original, so to speak, at these, I I think we ought to be quick to admit, I, I need to be quick to admit that I would probably be one of those original doubters. I probably would have been right there saying, you know, you need somebody to carry this stuff and I can at least, you know, carry it along. But I think I would have expected to find a dead savior. But this passage not only introduces us to the original doubters of the resurrection, it also shows us what happens when doubt meets reality. Look at verses four through eight. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Luke records that these women uh, were sitting there and they were perplexed. In the the Greek, that literally is translated that they were utterly at a loss. They stood by the tomb. They actually had gone into the tomb and looked for the body of Jesus. They got there probably wondering how they were going to roll the stone away from the covered-up grave. And now it's been moved, and they're probably thinking, oh my gosh, I'm relieved. At least we'll be able to take care of the Lord. At least we'll be able to to get inside the tomb. And they go into the tomb. There's no body. Neatly folded linens. And they come back out. They're looking at one another with probably some kind of blank stares on on their faces, maybe scratching their heads a little bit, so to speak. And maybe they begin to say, what do you think happened? Who could have possibly moved his body? What purpose would there be in that? You could begin to see them having this conversation either in their minds or, or, or together one another, but they are utterly at a loss. They don't know what's happened. And it's at that moment that God intervenes. It's at that moment where his messengers speak the truth 
into these doubting and broken hearts. And they speak with a question and a statement and a challenge. And I want us to see all three of those this morning. The question is, what are you doing here? Why are you here? It's a fair question. I think they would say, well, we're here because we're, we're here to, to take care of Jesus's body. I think, the question, I think they would say, well, we're here because we're dealing with doubt, but they ask the question in order to bring it to the surface. A good friend does that. A good counselor does that. They will, they will ask you the question that needs to be asked, not because they need the information, but so that you can be ministered to, so that you can begin to wrestle with what's really going on in your heart. And I hope that's part of what the Holy Spirit does in your life. Sorry as I spit all over. I'm glad there aren't a whole lot of chairs right here in the front row. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does. So he convicts us to think about what we believe. And my prayer for you this morning is that God will do that in your life, that he will cause you to think, that he will challenge you with this question, why are you here? What are you looking for? What are you seeking? And then they offer a statement, he's not here. You've come to the wrong place. And the statement speaks truth into their broken hearts. And then they offer this challenge, remember what he said. Remember how he spoke to you before his death. This message is a message of compassion, but it's also a message of truth. You know, you can see the angels kind of going, you know, why are you here? I don't think they're doing it, you know, kind of getting in their face and and fussing at them. I think they're said with tenderness, with gentleness, why are you here? Don't you understand what's happened? But they also speak the truth. I think this points to the fact that that God always allows the questions. If you ever meet somebody that says, God doesn't want to hear your questions, they don't know God. (laughs) You ought not listen to them. God welcomes your questions. Any question you may have, and in a room this size with this many people, I'm sure there are lots and lots of questions. I've been in the ministry for 27 years. I know the questions. I know the hurt and the pain and the struggle that people go through. You say, well, you're a pastor in Kirkwood. Bad stuff doesn't really happen in Kirkwood, right? You really don't want to know. You don't want to hear the stories I've heard. The pain that people go through, they don't share with anybody else for whatever reason they feel comfortable talking with somebody like me. The devastation that takes place in people's lives in a nice, pristine, wonderful community like Kirkwood. I love community. I love Kirkwood. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm red and white all through, but there's a lot of pain here. There's a lot of struggle. And God welcomes our questions in that struggle. God's truth allows the questions and they aren't rebuked, but there is a kind and gentle confrontation that takes place. He's not here. He's risen. Don't you remember? And then it says in verse eight, and they remember the light came on. You know, it's that V8 moment. Oh my gosh. Now I remember. Hey, and you can almost see them talking to one another and forgetting the angels are there. You know, the angels like, hey, you know, we're still talking. No, you remember he did say that. That's right. He said he was going to rise from the dead and off they go. Their doubt was real, but so was Jesus' promise of life. Dr. Norman Anderson uh, is a great, was a great thinker and theologian in the Church of England, the late 20th century and the early 21st century. Uh, Dr. Anderson was a chairman of the House of Laity, the Church of England. He was a professor of Oriental Law at the University of London and director of the Institute of, of Legal Studies. He was a, a brilliant theologian, thinker. He was asked... Uh, on one occasion, or he was compelled on one occasion to preach at the funeral of a young man who was also an up-and-coming star uh, in Great Britain. He was a great mind. Uh, he was enrolled at Cambridge, and he was studying several for several different degrees. And he died of a brain tumor. 
cancer when he was still a young man in college. Dr. Anderson preached the sermon, and uh, Ted Schroeder records sitting in the church. Uh, he said he entered the pulpit, and this was his text. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are above all men most to be pitied. Dr. Anderson knew the doubt. He knew the pain because he was burying his son that day. But he knew what happens when doubt meets reality. And he knew the truth of the resurrection. And he knew that he didn't need to be pitied because he was a belief monger or a vain hope where there was no hope. But he knew the reality of the resurrection of the dead. And he knew that his son's suffering was over. Which leads me to my third observation in this text. And that's simply doubt dispel. Look at verses 9 and 10. After they remembered his words in verse 8, returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and John and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Not finding a corpse and hearing the good news, they returned with this message to the eleven and to the other folks who were gathered. Luke doesn't specify how many people were there. It's a small group of folks, maybe uh, maybe 30 or less, somewhere in that neighborhood. They were in hiding. Uh, they were worried about their own lives. If, if they had uh, if the leader of their group had been killed, would the Pharisees come after them uh, and maybe attack them? And so they're, they're in hiding. But these women go and they find him. They know where they've staying and they come in and they give them this news. I find it interesting that on the way to the tomb, uh, these women are struggling, obviously, with pain and with sorrow. And that's what, what doubt does to you. Doubt leaves you self-obsessed. It leaves you trying to find coping mechanisms. It, it leaves you at a loss for how to truly engage in this world. If you really do wrestle with doubt and you don't find the answers, it doesn't just stop there. It begins to eat away at your soul. But the moment the truth shines its light into your life, they remembered and they went. They remembered and they went and they told. They were spurned on to activity. That's what faith does in our lives. Doubt may leave you self-obsessed, but faith gives purpose and it moves us to action. If you're here this morning and you're not a disciple of Jesus, uh, we may bug you a lot. And I want to confess that right up front. We're kind of obsessed with this Jesus thing and we can't let it go. That's really my story. I came to faith at an early age, and, and I am compelled to share this story with other people. I remember having a, a camp out in my backyard uh, with the neighborhood kids. We were probably seven or eight years old, and we're laying there, and we're looking up under stars. There's a bunch of seven and eight-year-old boys. You can only imagine uh, the conversation that's taking place, deep and intellectual as seven-year-old boys are. We, we actually can have some pretty serious conversations at that age. So I, I don't want to pick on that group because I know at, at that age, when I was that age, with those guys in my backyard, I told them about Jesus. I told them about the hope of the resurrection. And I asked a point blank, do you want to pray to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? So I know what it feels like to be compelled. You know, I'm, 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 I want to say I'm sorry we're so persistent, but I'm not. I, I kind of feel like the ShamWow salesman on TV. Have you seen that guy? That boy's fired up. I mean, he is, he's excited. And, and I have a confession this morning. I, I bought some ShamWow 
Anybody, any other ShamWow disciples? Okay, we got a couple of, all right, uh, let's just have the truth out here. ShamWow disciples, okay, we got a, we got a few in the crowd this morning. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> I mean, that guy's fired up. ShamWow, it's a, never mind, I'm not even going to go into that. But something far greater is coming to our hearts. Something of eternal magnitude. And we can't help but talk about Jesus. I don't know if you've ever heard of, of uh, Ludwig uh, Wittgenstein. Ludwig Wittgenstein was one of the greatest philosophers of the earliest, uh, early 20th century. He passed away in 1951. And I never knew this until recently. But Wittgenstein was a believer in the resurrection of Jesus. And I was, and I was trying to think of, of how to explain, you know, kind of just this compulsion, this we, we've got to talk about it because it's so real. And I, I read some of his words. This is a quote uh, from him. And I think it, it, quite frankly, as I read some more, it really surprised many of his admirers because uh, Bertrand Russell, for example, said of, of uh, Wittgenstein, this is the most perfect example I have ever known of genius. So this, this is not a guy who's, who's a secondary thinker. This is a guy who, who is paramount. If you've ever read any of his work and you understand it, please come explain it to me. But here's, here's what Wittgenstein said. What inclines me to believe in Christ's resurrection? If he did not rise from the dead, then he decomposed, is in the grave like any other man. He is dead and decomposed. In that case, he's a teacher like any other man and can no longer help. And once more, we are orphaned and alone. So we have to content ourselves with wisdom and speculation. We are in a sort of hell where we can do nothing but dream, roofed in, as it were, cut off from heaven. But if I am really to be saved, what I need is certainty, not wisdom, dreams, or speculation. And this certainty is faith. And faith is faith in what is needed by my heart, my soul, not my speculative intelligence, for it is my soul with its passions, as it were, with the flesh and blood that has to be saved, not my abstract mind. I believe that God saved every part of him, including including his abstract mind, but do you hear his passion? His doubt had been dispelled, and he couldn't help himself but to speak the praises of God who rose Jesus from the dead. Last observation I want to give this morning out of this text is when reality meets doubt. I've asked the question, what happens when doubt meets reality? I want to flip it just for a second and ask the question, what happens when reality meets doubt? And in verse 11, it says this, speaking of the uh, 11 disciples, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Uh, the reason we did the DVD, I don't know if you saw the looks on the disciples' faces when she said, uh, he's risen, I've seen the Lord, but it was an incredulous look. It, it was a look of, are, are you kidding? This can't possibly be true. It's an idle tale as Luke uh, uh, responds and writes in his, uh, records in his gospel. Uh, they did not believe. Let me read you what Leon Morris says about this particular passage of scripture. Uh, Morris writes this, the apostles were not men poised on the brink of belief, needing only a shadow of an excuse before lurching forward into the proclamation of the resurrection. They were utterly skeptical. Even when women they knew well told them of their experience, they refused to believe. What happens when reality meets doubt? Well, times skepticism is what happens. Times unbelief is what happens according to Luke's gospel, even with those closest to Jesus. You see, discipleship doesn't erase 
your doubts for the rest of your life. If you are a follower of Christ, you know that there are moments where you struggle. There are moments when you feel the despair and the weight of the world. There are moments of great questioning. But I believe that Luke wrote about the disciples' unbelief, not because he wanted to pick on them, but because he wanted to show the graciousness and the compassion and the patience of our God. Because Jesus did eventually appear to these men, as we're going to read and study in the next couple of weeks as we wrap up our study in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus spoke to all of them. He did erase their doubts with his physical presence. He did teach them some before he ascended back into heaven. And these 11 doubters, along with probably the greatest doubter of the first century, a guy named Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, who set out as his distinct purpose in life to destroy the teaching of Jesus and the church of Jesus, these 11, along with Paul, changed the world. My namesake, Thomas, doubting Thomas, we we have all, Tom's have all, you know, Doubting Thomas, peeping Tom. I mean, there's all kinds of really great things you can, you can put with, with Tom. Thomas said the first time Jesus appeared to the other disciples, he wasn't there. He said, unless I put my hand in his side where the spear pierced him, unless I feel the nail prints in his hands, no way. I'm not believing. Show me the empirical data. Jesus showed up, patient, graciously, with compassion. He said, here you go, Thomas. Give me your hand. Put it right here. Here are my hands. Feel them. And they looked at Thomas. He said, now stop doubting. Thomas stopped doubting, was filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And his history tells us, ended up in Egypt and died for his faith because he refused to say that the resurrection didn't take place. He was killed because he was a disciple of Jesus. Of these 11 men in this room, 10 of them lost their lives because they refused to say that the resurrection didn't take place. They refused to believe anything except Jesus is Lord. And I believe that we see their, their, their skepticism here because God wants to remind us that he's patient and he is gracious and that he will work his truth in our lives. Doubts of the resurrection are just as real today as they were the first hour after Jesus rose from the dead. Difficult circumstances, fears, anxiety, skepticism. You might be saying, Tom, you know, you don't know my story. I would gently and kindly say, I do know your story. It's a story of humanity. Your story like mine. It's a story of brokenness. It's a story of hopelessness. It's a story of you got 70, 80, maybe 90 years, and you're going to die. That's your story. You want it in a nutshell? There it is. No hope in that. No joy in that. There's no peace in that. What, do the best you can? Ease your pain as much as you can for 60, 70, 80 years, and then go to an empty, go to a grave, decompose. But that's your story, and it's mine. I do know your story, because I know mine. There's another story that erases all those doubts. It's the story of the resurrection. It's what happened when reality meets doubt. Jesus creates faith within our hearts and gives us a new life. My prayer is that that faith is yours this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, we live in a skeptical world. We live in a world that champions skepticism. We congratulate people for being skeptical and for being cynical. We think it's a character trait that ought to be applauded. And Father, I don't want anybody to check their mind at the door when they come into church. I want us to be thoughtful, to be purposeful, and to ask the questions. And you welcome the questions. 
You didn't hide from these women's fear, their, 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 their uh, doubts, their unbelief. You didn't, you didn't uh, leave the disciples alone. They were feeling lost and not believing that Jesus rose from the dead. You were patient with them and you graciously led them into the truth. And that's exactly what we need this morning, Father. We need you to lead us into the truth. The truth that there is a risen Savior. The truth that he has risen on our behalf. That our sins can be forgiven. That that's what he did on the cross. He purchased our salvation. And his resurrection is your stamp of approval that you accepted that gift and that it can now be ours in Christ.